and verse 9. Therefore, be careful to do the words of this covenant, that you may prosper in all that you do. You stand this day, all of you, before the Lord your God, the heads of your tribes, your elders and your officers, all the men of Israel, your little ones, your wives, and the sojourner who is in your camp, both he who hews your wood and he who draws your water, that you may enter into the sworn covenant of the Lord your God, which the Lord your God makes with you this day, that he may establish you this day as his people, and that he may be your God as he promised you, and as he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Nor is it with you only that I make this sworn covenant, but with him who is not here with us this day, as well as with him who stands here with us this day before the Lord our God. Jesus Christ is the heart of the covenants. Jesus Christ is the Emmanuel principle, which is God with us. Now, if Jesus Christ has been the heart of the covenant, and Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, then the covenants must be one. How could the covenants be divided if Jesus Christ is not divided? If he is everything the yea and amen of all the promises of God, beginning with Adam and going to the consummation, then there must be a wholeness, a oneness of all the covenants that God has established from the beginning of the world until now. Makes sense, right? And if you are personally related to Jesus Christ, then you are bound not just with one of the covenants, but with all of those covenants that God has established through the processes of history. So that is what may be called the thematic unity of the covenants. There is one theme, one heart of the covenants, and that is Jesus Christ, the Emmanuel principle. I shall be your God and you shall be my people. Now we saw also last week that there is a structural unity of the covenants. We looked at the covenants with Abraham, Moses, and David. We looked at the points in which they are joined to one another. Now, you know, if you're laying a roof and starting to put shingles on a roof and then decide that you'll leave a foot or two on that roof in which you have no shingles, what's going to happen? You're not going to have a very unified roof and you're going to have a lot of rain in your house. You're going to think that or wish you were under the covenant with Noah when the rain begins to come through the rafters of your house and drip down through the ceiling. There must be that unity. Now, when you look at the points at which these basic covenants are joined, the covenants with Abraham, the covenant with Moses, the covenant with David, what do you see? Do you see God replacing one covenant with another? Does the Mosaic covenant replace the Abrahamic covenant? No, as a matter of fact, they overlap one another. 
God begins to work with Moses on the basis of the covenant that he had made with Abraham. He remembered the covenant that he had made with Abraham. When you get to the Davidic covenant, do you have in David an unconditional covenant in contrast with the conditional covenant of law under Moses? No, for, for David charges his son Solomon and he says, be careful to observe all the statutes and the laws and the commandments and the ordinances that were given to you under Moses so that God may fulfill the promises that he has made with you. There is not only a thematic unity, there is also a structural unity that binds the covenants with one another. Now tonight we're going to look at one further aspect of the unity of the divine covenants. Next week, the Lord willing, we'll be looking at diversity in the divine covenants and those two elements must be kept in balance with one another, but you can't say everything at once. You can't talk about diversity and unity in the same sentence unless it's a very long sentence. But we're going to talk and continue to emphasize now the unity of the covenants and then next week the diversity of the divine covenants. Now the particular thing that binds the covenants together that we're going to look at tonight is the genealogical dimension of the covenants. The genealogical dimension of the covenants. To see that in each and every one of the major covenants that God has established, there is a promise that spans the generations. Now like that rooftop, or that roofing that is being put on your house, if there is an overlapping of the generations so that you extend from one covenant right into the other, then you see that there is a unity that binds all the covenants together. And that means, practically speaking, that all of the covenants of God, beginning with the covenant that made, was made with Adam, then in the covenant with Noah, then with Abraham, then with Moses, then with David, and the new covenant, all of those are significant for you and for your life and for your family's life. Well, let's look at the covenants. Now, the first mention of the covenant of covenant in the Bible is in Genesis chapter 6, verse 18. It's with respect to the covenant that God made with Noah. Genesis 6, verse 18. And notice that immediately the genealogical principle is here established that God in covenant binds himself, not just with you as an individual, but with you in a family context. That is a part of the covenant. God in covenant binds himself, not just with you as individuals, but with families. Now notice what he says in Genesis 18, the first mention of the covenant. I will establish my covenant with you. You will enter the ark. The ark being the symbol of salvation and deliverance from judgment that was to come. You and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. There it is. Right there. In the beginning of the covenants. The covenant is made with you and your wife, your sons and your sons' wives with you. To bring your family into salvation. You know, it can be a great thing to have lots of children as long as you're talking about godly children. But it's not much of a blessing to have a bunch of brats running around the house, right? But God's covenant is a promise to you. 
There are obligations, as we shall see indeed, but the promises of the covenant are for you and your house. Now look at Genesis chapter 7, verse 1, continuing, continuing in the covenant with Noah. Now here it would be very good if we had a cotton patch version of the Bible. It would be very good because we could understand particularly what the scripture is saying here. I'm not sure that it comes out clearly in this particular version. But look at Genesis 7, verse 1. The Lord then said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and your whole family, because I have found you righteous in this generation. Noah is to go into the ark, he and his whole family. Now what about that you? If we had a cotton patch version, we would know whether that was a you or a y'all there. But what do you think about it? I have found, is that a you or a y'all righteous? All of y'all go into the ark because I have found you righteous. A singular you. Because the father, the head of the family is righteous, all of the family is to go into the ark of salvation. Now we'll see again that the father's faith cannot substitute for the faith of the children. But there are promises in the covenant and God works in the covenant to save not just individuals, but family units. One of the greatest things that God made in creation was the family. And one of the greatest blessings that he bestows in the world is the restoration of the family unit. And he binds himself in covenant in that life and death bond to that commitment. Now that's the covenant with Noah. Let's go to the covenant with Abraham, Genesis chapter 17. Genesis 17. Look at verse 9, or beginning at verse 7. God says in Genesis 17, 7, I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant. Now stop right there. Everlasting means forever. It doesn't mean a little while here, a little while there, a little while here, and a little while there. It means an unbroken succession, an everlasting covenant, one that goes on forever and ever. How could it go on forever and ever if it were not passed on? from one generation to the next. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your seed after you for the generations to come. Are covenant, are children in the covenant of God? Are children a part of God's covenant? Well, that's what it says. I will make my covenant with you and with your children after you for the generations to come. Now notice it's not just to establish Israel as a distinctive ethnic community, for it goes ahead and says, to be your God. That's the essence of the covenant. I shall be your God and you shall be my people. To be your God and the God of your seed after you. Verse 8, the whole land of Canaan where you are now an alien, I will give as an everlasting possession to you and to your seed after you. And I shall be their God. Now the land of Canaan is a picture of the new heavens and the new earth. The land of Canaan, as you understand it in scripture, is a land flowing with milk and honey, a picture of the restoration to paradise. And the promise of the covenant is you and your children shall participate in the blessings of the new heavens and the new earth in paradise. 
Now verse 9, then God said to Abraham, as for you, you must keep my covenant. Aha, uh-huh, you see. Perhaps this is the, mo- the greatest misunderstanding about those who can't quite accept the fact that children are in the covenant as well as adults. They think that that makes it possible for parents and children to be presumptuous, to presume improperly on the covenant relationship. And indeed, many do. Many presume that because they are believers, they don't have to worry about their children. They will be believers too. But they don't keep the covenant. They don't understand the obligations that they have as parents in the keeping of the covenant in the raising of their children, in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord, in teaching their children the things of the Lord, in setting before their children a godly example, in praying with and for their children. And they just sit back on their presumptions. And so they don't receive the blessings of the covenant. God said to Abraham, as for you, you must keep my covenant You and your seed after you. Now, isn't that interesting? There is obligation and responsibility on the children in the covenant as well. And may I say a word, not only to the little children, but to all of you who once were children and still are children in one way or another. You're children of somebody's if you're here today. This is a word to you as children as well. You have an obligation to keep the covenant. You have a great privilege to be a part of the covenant family of God. But with that great privilege also comes a tremendous responsibility. Don't go out into the world, into the secular school system, and think that you can be like all the other kids because you're different. You're bound in a covenant relationship with God. And you have special obligations and responsibilities to keep the covenant. And if the blessings of the covenant are to come on you as a child... You must believe. You must confess Christ. You must repent of your sins. And nowhere is there any suggestion that the fact that children are included in the covenant means that they may be presumptuous about their relationship in the covenant. You and your seed must keep the covenant. Verse 18 or verse 10, This is my covenant with you and your seed after you, the covenant you are to keep. Every male among you ought to be circumcised, may be circumcised, shall be circumcised. The children are in the covenant. They should receive the sign and seal of the covenant. They should be set apart visibly and publicly to be gods. They should receive the mark, the indelible mark upon them, You are gods. Now, of course, if they violate the covenant or if the parents neglect to keep the responsibilities of the covenant, then there are special curses. The most awesome, awful curses found anywhere in the Bible are curses spoken over God's covenant people, over those who have the blessing of being in the covenant and yet fail to walk in accordance with the laws of God's covenant. But the children must receive the seal of the covenant. They shall be circumcised. Now that circumcision does not save. 
That circumcision does not guarantee salvation. That circumcision, as a matter of fact, is an acknowledgement that natural birth does not make sons of God. That little blessed child of yours born into the world, it comes into the world with a need. And by circumcision, and we'll talk about it later, the Lord willing, a few weeks later, about the new covenant equivalent sign, the sign of baptism, that baptism or that circumcision is a public and open admittal on your part that your child is in need of the cleansing blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. It needs that cleansing blood. Natural birth is not enough to make a child of God. The Jewish people, the Israelite people in Jesus' day made a great mistake when they presumed that because they were circumcised, they were therefore better than others. When as a matter of fact, their circumcision should have humbled them to make them realize that when they came into the world, they were a filthy, unclean people like everyone else. And they needed the cleansing that only God can give in the covenant. You are to undergo circumcision and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and you. Now that sign sometimes creates a problem because we don't see all that is involved in what it symbolizes and the effectiveness associated with the sign. There are what you might say two levels of effectiveness of the sign of the covenant. The first level of the effectiveness of the sign of the covenant always works and that is that it binds someone into the visible community of the people of God. Now, don't think that isn't important. It is very important that someone is bound into the visible community of the family of God. And the sign of the covenant says that to the world. This person is set apart to be God's and has the privileges and the blessings of the prayers and the petitions and the examples of the people of God to be set before them. That is a part of the sign that is always effective. But there's another aspect of the sign of the covenant, and that is the internal, the sealing of the internal working of the spirit, the cleansing of the heart. Now, for whom is the sign of the covenant effective in that way? Well, we'll we'll short-circuit a lot of theological discussion here and just simply say, for the elect of God. It always works for the elect of God. That is, God's elect by circumcision in the Old Testament and by baptism in the New Testament always are sealed in the possession of a heart cleansing by the outward sign of baptism in the New and circumcision in the Old. And one logical conclusion of that fact is that that sign is just as effective for an infant as it is for an adult. If that infant is elect of God, he has the effectiveness of the sign of the covenant on him just as much as an adult who is an elect person of God has the effectiveness of the sign of the covenant working in displaying that he is a child of God. In one case, it may be that the sign is applied before faith that saves. In another case, the sign of the covenant is applied after the faith that saves. But always and in every circumstance, The seal of the covenant is effective for those who before the foundation of the world have been chosen to be God's elect, not because they deserved it, but because of his mercy to them. 
So this is the sign of the covenant. For the generations to come, every male among you who is eight days of old must be circumcised, including those born in your household or bought with money from a foreigner, those who are not of your offspring. Now that's very interesting, isn't it? From the very beginning, the Jewish community never knew purity of race. Did you realize that? The Jewish community never knew purity of race. This is Abraham we're talking about, the father of the Jewish people. And this says that any foreigner may become a full-fledged Israelite by confessing the God of Israel and receiving the sign of circumcision. And once that is done, he can intermarry among the people of God. He is fully accepted as a part of the family of God. So when a foreigner came and confessed the God of Israel, he was circumcised. And what happened to his children? They were at that time circumcised also because then the genealogical promises applied to his children just as it applied to the Israelite children. No matter what their race might have been, they were then a part of God's covenant. Those who are foreigners are those who are born in your household. My covenant in your flesh, she says, is to be an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who has not been circumcised in the flesh will be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. A serious thing not to receive the sign of the covenant. Well, you can see that in the Abrahamic covenant, there is a binding across the generations. There is a binding across the generations by the application of the seal of the covenant. So we see in the covenant with Noah, if we have our cotton patch version, we see it even more clearly that God's covenant is for you and your house. We see in the case of Abraham, the covenant is with Abraham and his house. And let's go on to the Mosaic covenant. Look at two passages in the book of Deuteronomy. First, Deuteronomy chapter 5. Deuteronomy chapter 5. <clears throat> Now, the historical circumstance of the book of Deuteronomy is important. Where is Israel when the book of Deuteronomy is being read by Moses or spoken by Moses? They're in the end of their wilderness wanderings. They're coming now to the land of Moab and the plains of Moab. They're right on the other side of the Jordan and they're about to cross over. Now, why did they have to wander for 40 years in the wilderness? Because the spies gave a bad report. And what was God's judgment on Israel? Because they didn't believe and, ex- and receive the promises of possession of the land 40 years previously. What was God's judgment? All of that generation that didn't believe must die in the wilderness. Well, that's happened now. Now look in that context at Deuteronomy chapter 5. Moses summoned all Israel and said, Hear, O Israel, the decrees and laws I declare in your hearing today. Learn them and be sure to follow them. The Lord our God made a covenant with us at Horeb, or Sinai. What does he mean, made a covenant with us? Why, the generation that were at Sinai had died in the wilderness. Verse 3, It was not with our fathers that the Lord made this covenant, Now, this is the way the text literally reads. But with us, that is us, 
that is all of us alive here today, God made the covenant at Sinai. Can you explain that to me, would you? How could God have made a covenant with these people who weren't even born at the time that Israel assembled at Sinai? Well, God did it because he's God. And because God binds himself to the generations yet to be born. God makes covenant promises not only for you, but for your children and for those yet to come, your children's children. And it's in the book. Now look at Deuteronomy chapter 29. Here is the end of this sermon of Moses, the text that was read for our scripture this evening. Deuteronomy 29 verse 9. Carefully follow the terms of this covenant so that you may prosper in everything you do. All of you are standing today in the presence of the Lord your God, your leaders and the chief men, your elders and officials and all the other men of Israel, together with your children and your wives and the aliens living in your camps who chop your wood and carry your water. Now notice what kind of nursery facilities they had in Moses' day. They brought the children right into the sanctuary. Praise God. Because they saw them as a part of the covenant community of Israel. All of you are standing here today. The big wigs and the important people and those who go out and chop the wood and draw the water for other people. Everybody's here today. Verse 12, you are standing here in order to enter into a covenant with the Lord your God. A covenant the Lord is making with you this day and sealing with an oath to confirm you this day as his people. That he may be your God as he promised to you. And as he swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now look carefully at verse 14. I am making this covenant with its oath, not only with you who are standing here with us today in the presence of the Lord our God, but also with those who are not here today. Who was not there? He had just lifted, raised the rose, he had just given the roll call all of you are here today, the big wigs and those who draw the water and chop wood, your wives and your children and even the foreigners and the aliens are all here today to run into the covenant. But I'm making this covenant not just with you, but with those who are not here. And who is that? The generations yet to be born. And as one is answered correctly, us. And you might say a proper reading of this text from our perspective, not with the fathers of old, but with us. That is us. All of us that are alive here today in Jesus Christ, God made a covenant with Sinai at Sinai. Somewhere along the line, one of your ancestors was grafted in to the Israel of God and they then became heirs of the genealogical promises of God that have now been passed on to you. And your children then will pass it on to your children's children. And how long? even unto a thousand generations. Now let's do a little literal interpretation here. A thousand generations. Let's figure now, a generation number is about, say, let's just say on the average 20. 20 years per generation. You multiply a thousand times 20 and what do you get? 20,000. So the generations of, or the covenant last of Abraham last at least for 20,000 years. Now how long ago did Abraham live? About 4,000 years ago, 2,000 to Christ and 2,000 to Abraham, you subtract 4,000 from 20,000, what do you get? 16,000. So we know that the Abrahamic covenant is going to 
be in effect for at least the next 16,000 years. That's what you call literal interpretation. A thousand generations is a symbol of forever. In unbroken succession, you are the sons of Abraham by faith in Jesus Christ. You have been grafted into that true Israel of God and that means now that the promises of God are to you as they were to Abraham. Every one of you out here, you know what I see? I see a bunch of little Abrahams and a few Sarahs here and there. You're Abrahams and Sarahs and just like Abraham and Sarah, you have the same promises, the same covenant made to you that was made with them. With Noah's covenant, with Abraham's covenant, with the Mosaic covenant. I'll just give you a scripture reference for the covenant made with David, 2 Samuel 7, 14, in which God, the whole point of that covenant is that the kingship of David will extend throughout the generations and then compare that with 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20, in which that particular promise of the being the sons and daughters of God is passed on into a new covenant context. And that brings us to the last of the covenants, the new covenant. It is often suggested, yes, indeed, it is true. It is true that in terms of the covenants of the Old Testament, there was a, a corporate dimension That is, God had to maintain the Israel, the nation of Israel, and so he made a covenant with that nation in a corporate sense. But in the new covenant, it is suggested that you have a highly individualistic covenant. And in contrast with the old covenants, you have in the new covenant an individualistic covenant. So the only people that are in the new covenant are individuals as over against families. Well, let's look and see what the new covenant actually presents to us. Jeremiah chapter 31. Jeremiah 31. Verse 31. You can remember that verse easily. Jeremiah 31, 31. The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. With what? With each individual in Israel. No, what does he say? The house of Israel and the house of Judah. It will be not like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel. I will put my law in the hearts of the house of Israel. And it's interesting that when you get to the New Testament, and this is a fact that is often overlooked, how many actual instances of baptisms do you have in the New Testament? In the book of Acts and and in the epistles, how many instances, cases of baptisms do you find? Well, nine or ten, possibly about that number. I need to get out my concordance and count more exactly, but I counted this afternoon nine and possibly ten instances of baptisms. Now, two of those have to do with eunuchs. One is the Ethiopian eunuch and one is Saul, whom apparently was an unmarried person. So will you allow me to subtract that number from the total if we're talking about 
community as over against individualistic incorporation into the family and covenant of God in the new covenant. Take the nine, you subtract two from the nine and you get seven. And six of those seven instances of baptism in the New Testament, one way or another, refer to the households or the children in baptism. But you say, we don't know that those households included any infants, any children in them, any little children. And there are indeed cases in which it's plain that those children understood the gospel as it was being presented. Well, that's true, but give me any basically primitive culture without the sophistications of birth control that we have today and give me any seven households and tell me that there are not going to be some infants in those households. What is a household by definition? A household is all of those in the house. And that is the pattern of the new covenant. That is the promise of God for you. And that is how the covenants are united. You are an heir of the promises to Noah because you are bound in that covenant. You are an heir of the promises of Abraham because you too are a child of Abraham, inheriting the promises even as the foreigners of old and engrafted into Israel. And those promises are for you and for your children. You are an heir of the light that comes through the law of Moses. That law, and remember the new covenant says, I will write my Torah in their hearts. What is that Torah? Why, it's the law of Moses written now in the hearts. And it is for you and for your children to be good and godly children. Now, what should you do in response to this fact that God's covenants are united and that you are united with the generations to come. First of all, you and I together have got to repent. We have got to repent individually and as a community for the sins that we have committed against the covenant. You fathers, you know, you have sat back to let the mothers do most of the teaching of the children in the household, haven't you? You fathers, you've counted on the Sunday school teachers to lead your child into faith in Jesus Christ, haven't you? Have you fulfilled the promises that you solemnly made here to pray with and for your children and to teach them the doctrines of our holy religion? We must repent. We must confess our sins. And we must turn from those sins. At the same time, you children, you must repent for your resistance and rebellion to the blessings that God has given you by being bound in a covenant. Any of you here who are resistant to the inheritance that God has given you, beware of the special curses that God has spoken over you and joyfully confess your sins that you might receive forgiveness. And on the other hand, not only must you repent and not only must I repent, but we must also claim again the covenant promises of God. We must thank God for the grace of the covenant relationship. And you must never stop praying for your children. 
No matter how far they may stray from the Lord, you must never stop claiming for them the promises of God. And you must never let them out of your sight or your mind as you lay them before the Lord. And you grandparents, let me just say a word to you. You're in covenant relationship not only with respect to your children, but your grandchildren. You go visit those grandchildren and you pick them up and you put them on your knee and you tell them in your own words about a man named Jesus. And you let them hear from you about Jesus, the Son of God, who loved them and gave himself for them that they might have everlasting life. They will hear from you in a way that they will not hear from anyone else. You exercise that wonderful privilege you have as one bound in the covenant. We have lost our balance. We have failed to see that we have obligations and our children have obligations, but we also have privileges in the covenant. And so every generation, again and again, we have to have a new revival sweep through those that should be the hallmark and the foundation of the advancement of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let us pray and commit ourselves again that God would raise up in our children Christians that will be stronger than we. Let us pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that you consider us in our weakness and frailty as children, each one of us. And so you have given to us that great privilege and blessing, not only of having ourselves bound to you, but our children and our children's children, even to a thousand generations. Forgive us, O God, forgive us as fathers and as mothers and as grandfathers and grandmothers for failing in our covenant obligation and give to us greater hope for the future that your grace is sufficient for all our needs and by your grace make us able, O Lord, to fulfill our obligations and enjoy the blessings of your eternal covenant. For we pray in the name of Christ Jesus, the Son of God, the Father of us all. Amen. Let us stand for the benediction. May the love of God the Father, the grace of God the Son, and the fellowship of God the Holy Spirit abide upon you all now and forevermore. Amen.